What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Thank you for joining me for what is likely to be the last the last episode of the year. Um, there's a slight rain falling behind me. I'm a little stuffed up, so if there's a bit of uh, noise or sniffles in the audio, please forgive me. And if you've been following this podcast uh, regularly, you'll know that my attention has turned in the last couple of episodes towards genetics and specifically genetic medicine, genetic technologies that are coming down the pipe that are likely to dramatically change uh, our our world, our society, our healthcare. Um, and not to overhype things too much, these things do take time. There's always this period, you know, especially in science news where you hear, ah, the breakthrough is coming 10 years from now. We've been hearing about this for, you know, cancer breakthroughs or multiple sclerosis, these kind of things, right? But since the advent of things like CRISPR uh, and other uh, stem cell techniques, we could add uh, messenger RNA technology to, to this list, the mRNA vaccines and whatnot that we've heard so much about this uh, last couple of years. There's lots and lots of things that are uh, coming, as I said, down the pipe uh, in terms of medical technologies that are going to really shift the way that we treat diseases and, and what is possible. And the theme that I've been focusing on the last couple of, of episodes has kind of been this idea of, well, these things are going to really change uh, the world, but they're also going to introduce us to a lot of weird questions and trade-offs that we might not be totally ready for. Uh, the repercussions, uh, both ethical and then also in terms of like side effects of some of these treatments. Um, and so today I want to actually highlight two really interesting stories I found about these technologies. So actual trials that have been done with two gene editing techniques that are being used to treat diseases right now. And the big news is that one of these, a CRISPR-based technique to treat sickle cell anemia, is the first FDA-approved therapy that uses CRISPR gene editing. So this is actually just a big breakthrough, a big milestone in terms of these types of technologies. So yeah, that was one that I wanted to highlight. There's another one that we'll talk about that's a technique that's sort of based on CRISPR, but it's a little bit different, and we'll, we'll dig into that. But when it comes to the sickle cell anemia story, again, amazing milestone, amazing breakthrough in terms of what we can do with this technology and how we can actually alleviate the suffering of people with sickle cell anemia. But there's something that doesn't get talked about a lot in the headlines. And that is a really difficult trade-off that the patients who want this treatment are going to have to make. And we'll talk about that too. So hopefully these two stories sort of encapsulate all of the things that I've kind of been thinking about when it comes to uh, breakthroughs in medical technologies and specifically genetic technologies. Again, looking at the, the amazing, you know, breakthroughs and good that can be done, but also look at, we're going to have to have some weird conversations and some difficult conversations about these technologies. So we should all be prepared to understand what's going on 
and to be able to make our, our two cents known. And so with that, I think it's good to also maybe start with a bit of a, a primer, a recap uh, on how DNA works. Some of you may already know this. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you do, skip ahead a couple minutes. But, but yeah, I think it's important to uh, just go over some of the terms again, base pairs, these kind of things, and, uh, and, and get a, a visual in our mind of how DNA works in order to better understand how things like CRISPR and then this other base editing uh, technique that is based on CRISPR uh, actually works. So if you remember from high school biology, inside of every cell is a nucleus, which is in basically the middle of the cell, and it contains all of your DNA and the tools needed to identify genes in that DNA uh, sequence, to read those genes, the sequence of those genes, and turn that sequence into a messenger RNA sequence that then gets brought to the protein-building parts of the cell. So DNA is a double-stranded molecule, meaning there's two pieces uh, of DNA that kind of fold together like a zipper. A zipper is often the analogy that uh, is used, uh, and it forms that spiraling double helix, right? So this is really important because it makes DNA stable. Uh, when the two strands are locked together, uh, it's a stable molecule, so there's not a lot of chances for um, genes to get uh, read and expressed unless the body actually opens up, the cell actually opens up that, that DNA helix. And it also, uh, yeah, just keeps it stable so it doesn't break down and, you know, prevents mutations. Mutations do happen when, when DNA is being replicated or um, a gene is being read and turned into a protein. But Overall, DNA, when it's locked into the zipper uh, of the double helix, is pretty stable. The other important thing about there being two strands of DNA comes down to the ability to replicate DNA. So when your cells divide, you need to be able to copy the entire genome as faithfully as possible without as with as few errors as possible and give each new cell uh, a full copy of the genome. And so this is where uh, the base pairing, as it's called, comes in. And again, it's, it's all about how there's two strands of DNA. So on each strand of DNA, you have all of these combinations of four possible, what are called bases. And these are just molecules uh, that attach to the spine of the DNA, and they're what you often hear. Uh, you often hear the terms A, C, G, and T. Those are the the first letters of the names uh, of these molecules, and they make up the four bases that are possible in a DNA strand. And the really neat thing is that these bases will pair with each other exclusively. So if you have an A in a position on one strand of DNA, the opposite strand of DNA, so the other side of the zipper on the double helix, will be a T. When you have a C, you always have a G. And this means that the DNA, the two strands of DNA, are completely opposite of each other. But when read in those different directions, then they give you the exact same genome. So each strand of the DNA helix has a, has a set of, has a string of A, C, T, G, 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 C, G, whatever it is, uh, and the opposite strand will have the corresponding bases so that when uh, the strands break apart and then are 
uh, the, the, the cellular machinery goes to replicate. It just looks at what base pair is on that strand and adds the corresponding one to the new strand. And that's how you can faithfully replicate the whole genome uh, in a cell. So these base pairs, what do they mean? What do they do? So when, you, when you're looking at a, a strand of DNA, so the body wants to, what we call, uh, express a gene. It wants to make something from, from based on the recipe of the genetic code. These little uh, molecules will open up the, the DNA, double, the double-stranded helix, and will look at one side, and it will start to look at three-letter chunks. So every three base pairs, so it could be ATT, CTG, GGG, these are what's called codons. And a three-letter combination, a three-base pair combination, codes for an amino acid. Now, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, of all proteins, and there's only 20 amino acids that exist. So you can think about the number of three-letter codon combinations that are possible. There's way more than 20. So multiple codons will code for the same amino acid, uh, and this gives uh, redundancy in the genetic code. And uh, this form of redundancy is actually one of, the, one of the many ways in which the body kind of safeguards against mutations. You can make a, a, a change in a three-letter codon, and it's not, it may not actually change the protein sequence at all because of this redundancy. But anyway, this is how the body goes from the recipe that's laid out in the genes uh, to proteins being made. So, barring what I just said about redundancy, not necessarily leading to a change in the sequence, leading to a change in the amino acid, oftentimes that is what happens. You do get a change uh, in, in the amino acid sequence, and then that changes the protein. Maybe it's a subtle change that doesn't really affect anything. Maybe it's a major change that does uh, really change the protein or change the way that the protein functions. Um, Maybe it makes it better, maybe it makes it worse. This is how mutation and evolution, you know, uh, uh, occurs. The other thing that happens is if you um, change a base pair uh, and therefore change the codon or you delete a base pair completely or a section of base pairs completely, uh, you cause an error in the reading of that gene and therefore the, the, the cell can't, can no longer read that gene and produce the the protein uh, that corresponds to it. So effectively, you've turned that gene off. And this is going to be important for the genetic technologies because a lot of where we're at right now in terms of using CRISPR and genome editors is simply turning genes off. It's sort of one of the easiest things to do rather than sort of trying to manipulate the coding sequence to make a better protein or something like this. Uh, in, in many cases, we're just turning things off. But as you'll see, we can do a lot uh, with that. If we know what a gene does, uh, what protein it makes, and then what that protein's job is. Sometimes turning that off can really help uh, someone who's uh, afflicted with a certain disease. And we'll see those specifics uh, in, in use. So that's the important thing to remember is that DNA is double-stranded. If you have whatever base you have on one side, you have the corresponding opposite base on the other side, A with T, C with G. And the A, T, C or the A or the AAA or the GGG, those three letter uh, codons as they're called, code for an amino acid, 
that then gets put into a sequence uh, to make a protein. So the last thing we need to elaborate on is this messenger RNA uh, that I talked about earlier. So as the cellular machinery is reading a gene, it's looking at the codons, uh, it's what it's doing is it's creating what's called a messenger RNA. So RNA is very similar to DNA, except that it's single-stranded and it uses one, uh, one different base, which isn't really important. The point is that this single-stranded RNA then carries the message, the recipe of the gene that has been read, and it brings it to the ribosomes, which are another uh, part of cellular machinery. And then the ribosomes read that gene sequence and actually grab the amino acids uh, that are that are in the instructions that are in the recipe and link them together. So that's how you actually go from DNA to protein, is you need this intermediate messenger RNA called mRNA to bring the message to, to the ribosomes. And mRNA is really important uh, because it is single-stranded and because it is RNA, a slightly different molecule from DNA, it's less stable. And that's key because once you turn a gene on, you're creating all of these messenger RNAs based on the, the genome sequence that you're reading. You don't necessarily want that to go on forever, right? So the mRNA degrades uh, fairly quickly over time. And so the body, if you want to keep that gene you know, active, you want to keep making that protein, you got to keep making more messenger RNA. So again, another like kill switch, sort of fail safe in, in the mechanism. And so then when we talk about the messenger RNA technologies that we're using for vaccines, etc., this is again, what makes them safe. You can, you can inject uh, a messenger RNA uh, for anything that you want, uh, the vaccine, or as we'll see, you know, the actual pieces that are involved in base editing, the CRISPR or the base editing tools, you can put those uh, in mRNA form, you can code for them uh, in mRNA form, give them to the cells, the cells will make that and then they carry out that task and then they degrade so they're not perpetually uh, doing that thing in your body or going everywhere and doing that thing in your body. So I think this is enough background to get us uh, up to speed uh, so we can you know, smoothly talk about these stories without having to explain all of this um, as it comes up in the, in the stories themselves. Uh, and it's just, it's really cool to, to think about and to, to rehash it, you know, to really think about how DNA works and how proteins work. It's just, it's, it's amazing that this is going on in our bodies all the time. Uh, anyway. With that, I must first say thank you all so much for, for tuning in this past year. Uh, I've had a really good year. I've really enjoyed uh, making these episodes. We talked about psychedelics. We had some cool interviews. Uh, I put out a piece uh, about the uh, integration workshop that I went to. I thought that was a really important episode for me to make. It was very much out of my comfort zone, and I really enjoyed making it. Um, and it's been a it's been a nice year uh, for growth with the podcast. We've seen a little bit of bump in terms of uh, people listening. So I want to thank you for all of that. Uh, and as always, if you're enjoying the show, tell your friends, uh, subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts, whatever podcast player you're using, and give us a like, give us a review on that uh, platform. That really really helps our visibility. You can uh, follow us on Instagram at Two Brad for You. That's probably where we're most active on social media. So you can follow us there, like us there. 
you know, boost the posts there. That that that's always very very helpful. Uh, we are on Twitter as well at Two Brad for You. Again, same handle, but I don't know. Twitter's slowly dying. We're kind of not really too active on there anymore. We'll see what happens in the new year. Um, and you can go to the website twobreadforyou.wordpress.com. So again. Thank you all so much for for tuning in. Thanks for the supporting the show. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review, a like. All of those things really helps. Tell your friends uh, if you think this podcast is worth it. And uh, here we go. Final, likely the final episode of the year, unless something major happens. So let's do it. Let's get weird. Let's talk about editing our genomes. The first one I want to talk about is actually the one that is is uh, further away from being, you know, approved. We talked about in the intro that there's uh, the first approval for a CRISPR-based uh, technique to treat sickle cell anemia. Uh, we're going to save that one for the end, and we're going to talk first about cholesterol. Uh You've all heard the terms good and bad cholesterol, right? So bad cholesterol is a type of cholesterol that like clogs the arteries. It ends up uh, as fat uh, in your arteries and can cause the really nasty cardiac symptoms like, uh, you know, a heart attack uh, and possibly death. And this is, uh, you can control this with diet and a bunch of other factors. But there's some people that have a genetic disposition uh, that means they have too much of this of this uh, bad cholesterol. Their body can't regulate it as well as other people. And so, you know, the geniuses, the eggheads down in the lab have developed a base editing technique that's, that's, uh, that comes from CRISPR. It's not CRISPR, it's different, but it's based on CRISPR um, and to, to, to find a way to, to treat this. Uh, and so when I say it's based on CRISPR, we need to look at the differences uh, between CRISPR and what this new technique is called, which is actually base editing. So remember from the intro what a base is, a DNA base, uh, one of the A, T, C, or G. So in CRISPR, what you're doing is you're actually cutting both strands of the DNA and then the cells themselves actually uh, imperfectly repair that area. So you can snip the middle of a gene uh, and then when it gets repaired and the, and the DNA doesn't, the, the body doesn't fix it quite right, um, that gene doesn't work. Of course, with all of these technologies, we have to say that when you do things like this, when you make changes to uh, a cell's uh, genome, we don't really know what all the side effects can be. We put a lot of time into understanding what these changes are going to do because the thing with DNA uh, and our genome is that a change in one area can actually affect how different genes get turned on and off in a completely different area of the genome. So way, way far down the down the DNA strand, uh, there can be un, un, uh, un, unintended changes, right? So this is a really important thing with all of these uh, genetic technologies and people spend a lot of time researching uh, by doing you know first just just doing these changes in cells in a petri dish and seeing what happens right but it's a lot of information to try and and capture so there's always going to be these these unknowns um, and you can have things like uh, cancer genes being inadvertently switched on um, so with CRISPR you cut the double the double stranded DNA, and you can let the DNA then uh, the cell then repair the DNA itself. And 
if it doesn't do it correctly, uh, then the gene is turned off. If you want to actually change the sequence of DNA using CRISPR, you need to cut the DNA, but then you also have to have a bit of what we would call donor DNA. So the sequence that you want to add, the change that you want to make, you have to have that right there at the scene uh, of the cut as well. And then you need to also provide uh, enzymes that do the repair that would incorporate this uh, this piece of donor DNA into the gene into the genome. You also have to have those right there. So this makes it like really difficult because you have to have all of these different pieces and they have to work perfectly in unison. And that doesn't always happen. Uh, all of these processes, when we're dealing with DNA naturally in our body, um, they're not perfect. They don't work perfectly. Uh, and this is how mutations happen. But because we have so much redundancy, as it's called, uh, in the genetic code, um, uh, the most mutations don't really do anything. So we're not at risk of like these errors that get introduced, you know, causing big problems. Sometimes they do, and that's what the genetic diseases we're talking about. But so that's CRISPR. It's it's really good at snipping the DNA and turning things off, but it's much harder to uh, to actually change the sequence uh, of DNA with CRISPR. You can do it, but it's it's difficult. So the base editor that we're talking about for these patients with a genetic disposition for bad cholesterol, it works by actually using enzymes to change the individual bases into one of the other three possible bases. So it can actually go in, it makes a little, a little cut, a little nick in one side of the DNA strand, not, the, not both, just one, and then it has enzymes that will actually alter the chemical structure of that base that's, uh, that's right next to, that is now exposed from that, that small cut, and it changes it into a different one. Uh, so it can change an A to a T to a G to a C, right? And then it will actually make a cut in the second strand of DNA and the, the cell itself will go to repair that and see that, oh, now there's a T where there used to be an A and it will change the corresponding base into the correct uh, one that's supposed to be there. So if an A changed to a G uh, on the second strand, the body will repair that into a C. Right. So this is way more specific. You can actually go in and change individual bases. And again, we're at a level where we can change, you know, a couple bases, maybe, maybe just one. So we're looking for conditions, genes, where a single change at a, at a specific location, so at a specific codon, will turn that gene off, or in some cases in the future, we might see this actually turning genes on. There are a number of genetic diseases that that are caused by these single uh, changes in a gene. Uh, and so then if you can then fix that, that, that wrong base, uh, you could turn that gene on and then cure the patient. So in the cholesterol example, another important distinction to make when we're talking about CRISPR and this base editor, well, really any genetic editing technology, uh, is whether the changes are being done inside the patient's body or outside of the patient's body. Very often with genetic uh, technologies like this, what we do is we take stem cells from the patient. Stem cells are like the, the original blank slate cells that then can change into 
all of the different cell types that make up your body, blood cells, bone cells, muscle cells, brain cells, all of those things, right? So there's all of these different types of stem cells that then go on to grow and, uh, and divide and turn into all of the different tissues that you need. So oftentimes we're taking these stem cells, we are then editing them in the lab outside of the body and then putting them back into the patient and then these stem cells will uh, that have been fixed that have been edited will then grow into all the tissue into the tissue that we that they're supposed to but they will carry with them this edited genome forever they'll always have that and so as you make new cells as your body makes new blood cells whatever it is um, they will always have that edited genome rather than the original uh, genome so Back to the cholesterol story. The cholesterol story is interesting because it's the first, one of the first times that this base editing technology is being used. And it's also doing the changes to the genome inside the body. So we're not taking stem cells out and changing them and putting them back in. This is all happening in the body. And the reason that they can do this is because the cell or the, the gene that they're targeting is a gene that's used by liver cells. And liver cells are easy to target because you can inject your base editing uh, technology into the blood and all of your blood has to pass through the liver. The liver is the filter of the blood and all of the blood will pass through the liver and the liver is really good. It really likes to suck up foreign particles. So the little uh, particle that you've put your gene, your, your base editing uh, machinery in, uh, the liver will suck that up and it will be able to get to the cells that it needs to quite, quite easily. So what's the gene that the patients uh, have that needs to be fixed? So in the condition that we're looking at for this, uh, for this cholesterol example, um, the patients have one copy of a gene that codes for a receptor. So this little thing that sits on the outside of the liver cells and it helps to uh, attract and clear out the bad cholesterol. So again, very quickly, important to remember that in our cells, uh, all of our genome is packaged into chromosomes, right? And we have two of each chromosome. So we, we have two copies of every gene in our genome. And so in this case, one copy is defective and the other one isn't. Uh, we call this a, a heterozygous condition. If you have both copies of the gene that are identical, they're exactly the same, that would be homozygous. If you have one copy of a gene uh, that is different than the other one, it's heterozygous. So one copy of this gene doesn't work, and therefore you make less of these receptors and you can clear out less of the bad cholesterol which leads to artery clogging and again, uh, heart attacks, things like this, strokes. So these patients have to take drugs uh, in order to clear out their cholesterol because they have less receptors uh, on these liver cells that help them do that naturally. Um, without treatment, most of these patients are likely to have heart attacks or strokes by the age 50. So pretty nasty. Um, but the editor, the base editor that the that the researchers have devised doesn't actually go to fix the defective copy of the cholesterol clearing receptor the strategy is actually to disable another gene that codes for a protein called PCSK9 and PCSK9 actually goes around and removes the receptors 
that clear out the bad cholesterol. So it's kind of a, again, like a regulation thing. It goes along and clears out these receptors so that you're not, you don't have too many of them, right? But when you're already not producing enough because one copy of your, of your genes, uh, of your gene is is defective, when this other protein goes along and clears out uh, these receptors, you, you are again, can clear out even less bad cholesterol, leading to higher levels and again, uh, the, the, the disease symptoms. But if we turn this, this gene off, this PCSK9, it won't remove the receptors that you already have, and it will keep them active, and therefore allow you to clear more cholesterol than you might have otherwise uh, given your genetic condition. So to make this actually work, this is where we bring in the messenger RNA uh, technique. So again, just like the messenger RNA uh, vaccines, we are putting this little bit of messenger RNA that we talked about in the intro uh, in a little you know, fat globule, uh, and we're injecting it into the blood. That thing goes floats around, goes to the liver, is taken up by the liver cells, uh, and then the liver cells actually read this messenger RNA, and they start to build all of the, the, the things that we need for this base editor, which very quickly is, you know, the actual enzymes that do the cutting of the DNA, that do the changing of the base pairs, and importantly, there's another strand of RNA that is, uh, is, is, is designed to match the sequence of the gene you're looking for. And so it will bind, again, in that complementary way uh, to the gene that you're looking for at the very specific place you want to make the cut. And it will actually guide the en enzymes to make the cut and do the change there. That's how we can know that we're going to edit the right place is with this so-called guide RNA. So the tools get built by the cell itself, coded by the messenger RNA that we've injected into the body. Uh, they go to the specific spot in this gene, they make the change, and they turn off that gene that's going to code for the protein that's going to go and clear off the, the cholesterol-grabbing receptors. In the three patients that received the highest doses of the mRNA particles with all of this base editing stuff in it, uh, the measured amounts of the PCSK9 protein dropped between 47 and 84 uh, percent, and the bad cholesterol levels dropped 39 to 55 percent for up to six months. And so this is it worked really well, basically, because this is comparable to the to to patients who are taking the drugs uh, that block this same protein. So the treatment that we already have these drugs to block this protein, uh, the 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 base editing technique, uh, it worked just as well. And so it's a very nice proof of concept that you can get, you can achieve the exact same uh, results or comparable results, but without having to take a drug because drugs are hard on the body and there's a bunch of side effects that go into it. Um, so very, very promising, super fascinating that we can use the mRNA techniques. And if you remember when we talked about the vaccines, the COVID vaccines and uh, all of the stuff to do with that, we, we said this messenger RNA technology is going to be huge. And so now you see how, because we figured out how to accurately uh, package messenger RNA and get it into the cells that we want to get them into, um, we can now do things like this. We can now code for base editing 
uh, proteins and enzymes and stuff and, and put those into cells and get our bodies to make them and do this editing in the body. Super incredible. Now, it's important to note, again, uh, a lot of studies need to be done to, to follow this up and, and really understand what's going on. There were two heart attacks that happened during this trial. So two patients did have heart attacks. It's uh, important to note that both of these patients already had severely blocked arteries. So they were already kind of trending in the high-risk area. Um, one of the one of the patients that had a had a heart attack and unfortunately passed away. Uh, the the researchers and the doctors that reviewed all of this stuff said that it wasn't related to the treatment. It's likely that this person was going to have this heart attack anyway. They were already so severely clogged. Um, the other heart attack that happened, it happened the day after treatment with the with the mr mRNA and the and the gene editing stuff, and so they have to say it might have been related to the actual treatment. The actual treatment might have caused that heart attack. This patient survived, and they later said that they had chest pains uh, and some symptoms before the treatment was administered, but they didn't tell anyone. And so the company responsible for the trial said, had they known that, they wouldn't have gone ahead uh, with giving this patient the, the, the treatment. So little bit of a caveat there on the safety. And again, like proof of concept, you can do single base pair editing in, in the cells of a person uh, without having to take out the stem cells or, or whatever. It's, it's really, really fascinating. It's super interesting. And again, it shows you how all of these technologies are building on each other. So we have mRNA technology that is now possible that lets us actually deploy these things in the body. We have this single base editor uh, enzymes and techniques that were that came from our knowledge of CRISPR. Uh, so it's all building. It's a snowball and it's growing. Um, the next step for this trial is to try it in another 40 people. Uh, this These patients have all been from like New Zealand and the UK, I believe. Uh, the US recently gave the company doing this, this work approval to do trials, uh, so to recruit patients for trials in the US. Uh, and this is because the company uh, provided data showing that the base pair editor, the base editor, wouldn't alter sperm or egg cells, which is really important because obviously if you want to really protect the the reproductive cells, the sperm or the egg cells, because any changes that get made in there are going to be passed on to kids, right? So you really, really don't want to touch that because if you don't know exactly what's happening, uh, you could pass it on to children, which is a very, you know, obviously uh, crazy ethical um, um, area. Uh, so... Uh, once the company was able to show that that's not going to happen, they have uh, some data to show that, uh, the FDA said, okay, we'll allow you to do trials uh, in the U.S. as well. So that's just going to increase the amount of people that can be in the trials. And you want, of course, a diversity of people in these trials so you can see if things come up, what what risk groups there might be, all of these kind of things. And, and they're planning an actual placebo-controlled trial uh, for 2025. To recap, single base pair, single base editing, super neat. The fact that it was done in the body, amazing. Uh, 
And the other thing to note is that this shows that we could actually maybe use gene editing technology for sort of more mundane, let's say, conditions. Not things like, you know, the big ones like sickle cell anemia or Huntington's or Parkinson's or, you know, these cystic fibrosis, these these ones that we talk about, uh, very serious diseases that are caused by uh, mutations in genes that we're attempting to fix with this kind of technology, right? Um, cholesterol, obviously, for these patients is a very serious problem, but we do have drugs to treat it. But high levels of cholesterol might not be considered on par with some of these other serious diseases. So the company behind this technology says that the PCSK9 base editor could one day be used to treat people who don't have the genetic condition, but have, you know, just early uh, risk for heart disease. Uh, and so they might be able to use this to just lower cholesterol levels overall. You don't necessarily have to have this genetic condition. And it could even be wildly used in older adults to sort of ward off heart disease. Uh, a quote from, uh, from researchers with the company says, down the road, maybe you turn 50 and this is what you get and it prolongs your life. That's the ultimate vision. So again, we're now looking at, we're staring down the barrel of what could be just a normal genetic treatment that everybody gets as they age that can prolong your life by helping you with cholesterol. That's that's the really interesting thing with this. And again, to be sure, that is a ways off. I don't expect this to happen in my lifetime, but this is what we're looking at. And that is both incredible and you could also say scary. And that's the point of talking about these things, is to look at what are the consequences, what are the benefits, and how is this going to change human society, right? So the two sources for this story come from some great reporting in science, science news, uh, and they will be linked uh, in the show notes. And from here, we're going to jump over to the sickle cell anemia story. So the sickle cell anemia story is the first ever treatment to be approved that uses CRISPR technology. CRISPR, you've heard a lot about it. Uh, for since it was discovered in about 2014, I think. Um, it really, really allowed us to specifically make cuts in the genome uh, that we weren't able to make before. We can really target exactly where we want to cut. That's the, that's the real uh, advantage of this, of this tool. So you've maybe heard of sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia, people with sickle cell disease have mutations in both copies of the gene that codes for hemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying protein in red blood cells. And this causes the red blood cells that would normally be, be very flexible because uh, they have to go through all the tiny uh, blood vessels and bring oxygen to all of your tissues. Um, it makes them very stiff and they actually form a sickle shape or like a crescent moon shape. And because they're now stiff and in this odd shape, they tend to get stuck in blood vessels and they can't carry as much oxygen, which is at best extremely painful and at worst 
the cause of uh, organ damage and, and, and strokes. Because as the blood cells get stuck in the vessels, the, the tissue that's behind that blockage can't get oxygen. So you get like a whole cascade of inflammation and pain. Uh, and then those tissues can, can die. You know, you can have a stroke uh, in various parts of the body because these uh, blood cells are, are causing these blockages. And so people with sickle cell disease, they have to be very, very careful uh, about things like temperature. So when the temperature drops, if they get like a blast of cold air or something, uh, when when our body reacts to cold by restricting our blood vessels, this is to keep more blood uh, in the interior of the body and keep the vital organs warm. But this restricting response makes the vessels even smaller. So then the sickle cells get stuck more often and they just get like excruciating pain. Uh, and when they get these blockages, uh, it can, like I said, cause organ damage, strokes, excruciating pain. And it often means they have to go to the hospital and get, you know, different types of treatments to to loosen these up. So blood thinners, things like this, which then comes with a whole uh, slew of side effects. And the other interesting thing about sickle cell disease is that it predominantly affects people of African descent. And there's a reason for this. And that's because malaria, the blood parasite that's, uh, that's transmitted by mosquitoes, is very common in Africa. And as it turns out, if you carry one copy of the sickle cell gene, so one of the altered uh, hemoglobin genes, but you have a normal uh, second copy, you are actually protected from malaria. So you don't have the severe sickle cell uh, disease because you still are making you know normal blood cells with one copy, but malaria has a harder time infecting your blood cells because it can't get into those stiff sickle cell red blood cells. And so it actually, it's kind of protective. And so that means that a lot of people who have one sickle cell gene but a normal uh, other one, they actually survive better in the population, they do better, uh, and so this, what would normally you would think would be a, a gene that would be selected against, uh, is able to persist in the population because it actually has some benefit as well when individuals are heterozygous for this gene. So people with two copies of the sickle cell gene, very bad. Uh, and maybe over millennia might have been selected against to the point that uh, that that disease is either extremely rare or, or gone. Uh, but because of what we call this heterozygous advantage, um, people with one sickle cell gene and a normal one do better in the face of malaria. Uh, that gene has actually been kept around in the population. So it's remaining uh, in circulation because these heterozygous people do really well and then reproduce and so on and so on. Uh, and so this is why um, sickle cell disease is very common in Africa. And then in the US, people of African descent, African Americans in the US, tend to have the most uh, or the highest rates of sickle cell disease. So it's really uh, a disease that tends to affect this one demographic, and this will become important for the story as we go along. But let's look at what the therapy actually is. The strategy behind the recently approved genetic therapy, again, the first approval of a CRISPR uh, therapy, 
was again not to target the gene that's actually defective. So not actually to to try and repair the the mutated red blood cell hemoglobin genes, uh, the sickle cell genes. In this case, the target is a gene that codes for a protein which during development turns off the production of a fetal form of hemoglobin. So a type of hemoglobin that you make uh, when you're a fetus developing uh, in the womb. Uh, and this fetal form of hemoglobin doesn't have the sickle cell mutations. It's coded for from a different gene in the genome. And so uh, it doesn't carry that same sickle cell mutation. But as you develop, there's a gene that makes a protein that turns off the gene that codes for the fetal hemoglobins because it's like, well, you're not a fe- you're not going to be a fetus anymore, so you don't need it, right? But if we can turn off the gene that turns off the production of fetal hemoglobin, sickle cell patients will make continue to make fetal hemoglobin throughout their lives, which then replaces the sickle cell uh, hemoglobin uh, in the body and alleviates the symptoms. And now this is one of those uh, technologies, gene editing technologies, where you first have to take out the stem cells that turn into blood cells. And then they do the editing with CRISPR um, in, uh, in those stem cells, and then they put them back into the patient. And then those, the patient will continue to use those stem cells to make new blood cells uh, that are based you know, on this uh, fetal uh, hemoglobin because it's not being shut off. So these stem cells will continue to, to make that, that fetal form of the hemoglobin throughout their lives and allow them to live symptom-free uh, from, from sickle cell. And so this is an important distinction uh, because it increases the cost and complexity of the treatment. You have to do you have to get the stem cells. Uh, you have to take them out of the body. You have to keep them alive out of the body. You then have to do the, the editing in there and still keep these stem cells alive and then inject them back into the patient. So the cost of these things, a lot of these genetic um, techniques are very, very costly. This one uh, is is right up there because of this this extra step of having to do this stuff with stem cells outside of the body. Stem cells are notoriously difficult to work with. They don't do well in the lab setting. Um, and so this is already going to mean that a lot of patients in places like Africa, where the majority of, of global cases are, uh, lower uh, income countries, they're already going to have a hard time getting this treatment. And that's something we talked about, again, with like the psychedelic stuff, right? How good is a treatment really if it's so cost prohibitive that only a small group of people can get it? And this, again, goes to these questions we have about how are these things going to shape society? Are these going to be uh, cures for the rich and everyone else be damned? Questions that we need to be asking, right? But the data presented at the approval meeting, uh, so when, there, when the company was uh, going to the FDA for approval of this technique, it worked really well. They showed that in 29 of 31 patients who had had this treatment done, uh, they had a significant reduction in what they call vaso-occlusive crises. 
which is, that's just the term for when the sickle cells block blood flow to the point that, that, that it's causing severe symptoms. Um, and none of the patients in the trial were hospitalized, hospitalized for one of these crises, uh, whereas before, these patients were averaging 2.7 hospitalizations a year. So this is all really good news. Again, it works really well. Um, the normal caveat with all these things, we're always worried about off-target gene editing, right? So is are these things going to inadvertently target other parts of the genome and make changes there? Obviously, you don't want that. And it's a tricky thing to to ensure um and then we also just need to understand if we change this one section of the genome how does that just influence other parts even if the other parts aren't getting edited we have this uh, situation where like i said changes in one area of the genome can can all of a sudden make genes way downstream way on the other end of the of the genome uh you know more likely to get turned on and we don't understand all of all of the mechanisms behind this. This is what the what we call epigenetics. So all of the things that that lead to how genes get switched on and off, and which genes get expressed at what levels, that isn't due to the actual sequencing uh, sequence of the of the genome, right? So a lot a lot of things to again consider, and this is why these these um, these techniques take so long and are so costly to develop is trying to understand and safeguard and understand all of the risks involved with this. So for this treatment, uh, the, the researchers found that there's this hypothetical possibility that an off-target edit would cause leukemia. So you're going to, to edit the blood cells. Uh, leukemia is a cancer of the blood cells. You're going to edit the blood cells to keep this fetal um, hemoglobin going so that patients don't suffer from sickle cell maybe you inadvertently cause a mutation somewhere else that leads to leukemia. But after weighing all of the data, uh, the, the company doing this uh, provided quote from, from an article in Medscape, uh, an extensive analysis of the possible off-target effects, end quote. The FDA said the therapy meets the safety and eff effectiveness standards. So now the plan is for a rigorous uh, further 15 years of testing and patient monitoring to look for all of these risk factors, right? And to see if this, this is going to yeah, lead to some unintended consequences, all of that stuff. It, it, I bring this up to show you one that, yes, this is one of the weird things about these technologies that is kind of scary because we are, we are starting to really employ them and there is all of these odd questions about what this is going to do to the rest of the genome, etc. Uh, but I also want to point out that, you know, there is a very rigorous safety protocol that goes into this. And it shows you what kind of time scales we're talking about here. Because, you know, 15 years is a long time to be testing this. So it's been approved, which means patients can start getting it. It's going to, it costs so much. So it's going to be small numbers of patients at the beginning. And again, uh, we're going to follow these patients for 15 years and see what happens. And then as that time goes on, as people in these 15 years are getting treated and we can see what the risks are, what the side effects are, maybe there's, there's, there's not many and it, and it goes really, really well. And then more and more and more and more people will get that treatment over these 15 years. So really, really interesting 
uh, amazing work, really, uh, by the scientists, uh, the doctors, uh, to 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 help these people with sickle cell disease. But like I said, among all of those headlines about first approval of a CRISPR treatment and how rightfully so, what a what an amazing uh, technological medical feat this was. There's things that aren't getting talked about as not as much and the cost disparity you know getting this treatment to people who actually need it who tend to be uh in poorer countries lower income countries in africa or in the u.s the african-american population that tends to make i think the stats are something like they have about a quarter of the wealth on average that uh, uh white families have it's going to be, and the access to healthcare is generally less as well. And then there's all of the other things about discrimination in healthcare and, and the legacy of discrimination in healthcare, the mistrust that's been built uh, between those communities in the US. These are all going to be big factors in terms of how this um, treatment rolls out to the people that really, really need it. Uh, there's a really great article that uh, I want to point out to you um, in Stat News by a reporter named Megan Molteni. And that's the basis uh, for the information that I'm, that I'm, the story that I'm about to tell you now. In that piece, she already talks about how historically sickle cell uh, disease has been really underfunded in terms of the research of it. Again, because it, it just didn't affect the people that are paying the bills uh, or that people cared about, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so we have all of that baggage with this technique, this amazing breakthrough. But we have one other specific one that I really want to highlight and that Megan uh, Molteni uh, highlights in her article um, in Stat News, again, linked in the show notes. And it has to do with not one of these uh, off-target gene editing scenarios, but just that in the way that we have to take the, the technique where we have to take the stem cells out and edit them and then put them back in, again, already super expensive, but in order to have uh, those stem cells that the edited stem cells go back in and be the you know the main source of of uh, stem cells that are producing the, the 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 blood cells for the patient, you have to kill off all of the unedited stem cells, all of the ones that were then let's say natural ones there, and that involves a lot of nasty chemotherapy, and because of this. People have to make a choice. Do I want the treatment to uh, cure my debilitating, painful, potentially deadly sickle cell disease? Or do I want to have kids in the future? And that's because our reproductive cells, the eggs and the sperm, are particularly and extremely vulnerable to chemotherapy. And so many people undergoing chemotherapy uh, whether it's for these stem cell treatments or for things like cancer, uh, become infertile. And so one of the few things that these people can do is undergo uh, fertility treatments where your uh, freezing sperm uh, samples or 
freezing eggs, which again is extremely costly. And who's going to cover that cost? So in the in the trial for this uh, for this uh, technique, all of the patients were given that that fertility treatment, whether it was uh, freezing sperm or, or eggs, uh, they were given that for free. So they didn't have to make that choice. But now that it's approved and it's going to go out to a wider uh, group of people uh, who are able to, you know, now do the treatment and recruit patients for the treatment, who's going to pay for that? Not every patient is going to be able to afford those fertility uh, treatments freezing the eggs and the sperm, and they are going to have to make a choice between curing, as I said, a debilitating and painful disease, or run the risk of never having kids. In some places, these, uh, these fertility treatments are universally available, right? It's, it's anyone can access them, and so this is going to be less of a problem there, but countries like the U.S., not so much. Uh, different states have different rules regarding whether that fertility treatment, when you're undergoing some other treatment like chemo that's going to affect your fertility, uh, whether you have a right to that. But even if you do in some states, it's not covered by um, all insurers or it's only covered by Medicaid. Like It's a very ridiculous web of rules uh, uh, that go into this. And in some places, it's just, it's just you're out of luck, right? So again, here's a trade-off. You know, this one, it's not, it, it's something that's in the here and now. This isn't some hypothetical, uh, are we going to alter the genome to, to, to make ourselves, uh, you know, better to like, you have designer babies, right? Like the, like the Gattaca movie, the famous Gattaca movie, where, which is like the extreme form of these questions where rich people can have designer babies and poor people are left to be excluded from society due to their genetic inferiority. Very dramatic questions that, yes, we need to be discussing now. We need to be having these uh, discussions. But in the here and now, with these amazing genetic technologies, we already have really fraught things to deal with. Access to these treatments, who's going to pay for them, who will be able to access them, the sickle cell example is so stark and informative because it's this groundbreaking thing. It's the first of its kind, uh, which is going to pave the way for a lot of new things. But it also like dramatically highlights these questions of access and this secondary problem of uh, fertility. And, and, and in a lot of the headlines I saw, I didn't see that come up. It was really this one article in Stat Magazine, again, by Megan uh, Molteni, that did an incredible deep dive into this fertility question and just really showed how we need to talk about this. We need to figure this out. And when budgets and politics are so tight and hotly uh, contested right now, it really begs the question, we're doing all this great work, but what is it going to be for? Who is it going to be for? Will, will it actually make a dent uh, in society if we can't figure out ways to, to work together and, and, and take care of, of everybody? 
And so there it is. Let's end the year on that note. The typical to Brad for you right on the fence. Is it good? Is it bad? Well, it's it's both. Uh, and how are we going to figure this out? Um, this is this is a, a topic, a theme that I'm going to, uh, I think, really dig into more in the new year. Uh, just because I'm, like I said, I'm so excited by these genetic technologies. There's, there's a lot of fascinating things going on. And, and our understanding of the genome and how it works, I think, is in a lot of ways comparable to physics. You know, we have a lot of stories in, in popular science magazines and stuff are about physics and the nature of the universe and like what is dark energy and what is dark matter and all of these unknowns that we, we can see the consequences of them. We see that the planets and the, and the, and the stars and, and, and things in the universe don't behave the way that we think they should uh, based on our, our, our measurable understanding of the universe. But when you... When you do the equations, when you when you do the math, when you do the physics behind it, uh, you know something is there that we can't measure yet that that makes it all work. You have to you have to account for the existence of this thing. And genetics is is very similar in that we understand how genes work. We understand the the stuff I, I talked about in the beginning of the episode. We we understand the the three base pair codon system and how that makes a gene and how that gene gets translated to messenger RNA and then and then turned into a, 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 a protein. We understand all that. But there's large stretches of the genome that were considered junk DNA, it was called. We don't know what it did because there was no genes. We couldn't figure out if there was actually any genes in there. Uh, and now we know that some of that junk DNA is really important that spacing matters between different genes. And if you reduce the space between two genes, it affects the way that they're turned on and off. Again, this epigenetic stuff. So we have this really great model of understanding uh, how genetics works, but there's so many unknowns and it's such a huge, vast amount of data to churn through, again, like physics, but AI, supercomputers, all of these other technologies are going to make that job so much easier. So I really think the two are these fascinating kind of examples of, you know, how science is really at the tip of the spear in terms of figuring out these things. And both of these topics, again, come down to this fundamental questions about the nature of reality in physics, the universe, and then ultimately too, like life, how it works, why it works, why did it begin? And then of course, biology, the genome, looks at all of those same questions. Why we are the way we are, how does this work? How did it evolve? What are the origins of it? It's just, it's really, really mind-blowing and just amazing stuff. So definitely a topic I'm going to uh, keep digging into uh, over the holidays and into the new year because I, you know, I, I studied genetics uh, a bit uh, in my in my uh, graduate school, my PhD, and all that stuff. And I think you know I've I've got the bug again, got the genetic bug again to uh, to really look at this um, in more detail because you know stories like these base editing and CRISPR technologies are just 
so fascinating. And as I said, bring up so many interesting questions uh, ethically uh, and, and about our society, about humans, what it means to be a human, what our society uh, is, is all about in terms of, you know, helping people and who do we want to, how do we want to um, arrange our societies in terms of using these technologies? And how are these technologies going to affect how we arrange our societies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right, all right, all right. The horse is dead. You get it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in this year. Please rate, review, subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at 2 brad for you You can check out the website as well, 2BradForYou.wordpress.com. We really, really appreciate you having you here, tuning in. Reach out, get in touch. Let me know if these are the type of stories that you like to hear. Let me know if you have questions about any of the things that you hear on the podcast. I would love to engage with you and talk with you about these types of issues. Super fascinating stuff. So again, the rates, the reviews, the subscriptions, uh, all of that stuff really, really helps us out. Give us a follow on Instagram at 2BradForYou. And as always, big shout out to the Freak Motif for the music on the show. And with that, stay safe. Have a great new year. Have a great holidays. And we'll see you in 2024. Bye for now.